Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and surprise, welcome to a special bonus episode of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So subscribers, aren't you glad you subscribe because this showed up automatically? You're like, huh, there's more. Yeah. And we're going to do a few of these over the course of the year. So thanks so much for subscribing. If you're finding this through other ways, yeah, we do some cool stuff on this podcast once in a while. Well, hopefully every week. Yeah, what we want to do is is bring you some extra value. And actually, our team was talking this week about doing something special this summer, maybe when we hit episode 200. And that's going to happen fairly soon. But in the meantime, a special bonus episode with the CEO, the co-CEO of Belay Solutions, Shannon Miles. And Belay Solutions has been voted... Um, as one of the top workplaces in America. They won the top company culture award from Entrepreneur Magazine last year in 2017. They have made the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America three times over the last few years. And it's just amazing to see what's happened in their lives. So I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Shannon. And man, we go all over the place in this conversation. We talk about what it's like to grow up with very little. She grew up um, poor, honestly, and uh, really struggled. Uh, went on to college, uh, went on to graduate with a business degree, among other things. Um, became fairly successful as an employee in the corporate world. But then when they were in their mid-30s a few years ago, she and her husband decided to cash it all in and co-found Belay Solutions. Today, they are the co-CEOs. It is a massively growing company, as you probably heard me uh, talk about um, but half my team is Belay Solution team members. So uh, they manage my podcast, all of the sponsorships and my speaking engagements. So um, I am also somebody who benefits from Belay Solutions. And then Brian and Shannon have become friends as well. We've had Brian on the podcast a couple of times, way back, I think, around the first year. And then recently in 2018, Brian was back to talk about a virtual culture. But this is the first time I've had Shannon on. And she's really the operations part of the equation. And she talks about how they scaled it, like from startup to where it is today with, I think they've got five or 600 associates, like virtual assistants, and also close to 100 employees. It's incredible to see how they've grown and how they've done it. And it's an incredibly honest, candid conversation about the struggles, the good times, the bad times. I love the part about scarcity mentality versus abundance mentality. Um, she used to have a scarcity mentality and actually changed on that, which is rare. And uh, I also would love for you, if you're looking for part-time help, to check out my page on the Belay Solutions website. So it's Belay, B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash carry. You can hear some of my story. And if that's helpful to you, if you're looking to grow your team, uh, they've been massively helpful to me. And Shannon's got a brand new book out this week called The Third Option, all about why people don't have to choose between family and work. And we talk about that toward the end of the podcast. So bonus episode time. Here we go. Without much further ado, here's my conversation with Shannon Miles. Well, I am so excited to have Shannon Miles on the podcast. Uh, I feel like it's finally Shannon because we've known each other for a couple of years and it's been something I've wanted to do. Welcome. Thank you. It is an honor and privilege to be here. 
And just to help uh, leaders connect the dots, so you're married to Brian Miles, who's been on the a couple Brian of times. Miles, the Brian Miles, the Brian Miles, <laughs> <laughs> who's been on a couple of times more recently, earlier this year, uh, talking about virtual culture. And uh, I'm just thrilled we get to talk to you today because I don't think there'd be a belay without a Shannon. And um, you know, you are a big chunk of this company. And I want to I want to get oriented around your story a little bit, Shannon. So you used to work in corporate, and then seven years ago, you and Brian have founded uh, Belay Solutions, and it's been a rocket ride, hasn't it? Um, but let's go back yeah. in time and talk <laughs> about your life sort of before you launched Belay. Yeah, um, it has been a rocket ride for sure. And I think you know when I look back at my history and my corporate experience, all of it was leading up to the opportunity to start Belay. So I kind of grew up working my whole life from the time I was 10. I started babysitting and then did various jobs, waitressing, working in a bank, working in a Chinese restaurant, which nobody wants to see a white girl in a Chinese restaurant in college. (laughs) Guess not. (laughs) Tips are not great. They're not great. Uh Um, But I um, graduated from college with a degree in business and psychology because I love psychology so much, but um, you really have to go on and get your master's or your doctorate to practice in the field. So business was a next logical degree to obtain. And from there, I went into law. I worked as a paralegal for a couple of years after college and um, migrated into corporate law um, when I started working for McKesson, where I was for 10 years before we started Belay. So I had experience in, in a variety of different environments, small and, and large companies. And McKesson was healthcare? Is that right? Is healthcare? Yeah. Yep. It is a monolithic healthcare company. I think when I was there, it was like Fortune 15, huge organization. Wow. My division was focused on medical software, which Mm -hmm. has gone through a lot of change since I left. When I first started working at McKesson, I worked in the contracts department, writing contracts for the sales team. Super sexy work, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the side of law I never quite figured out. I would just litigate contracts that fell apart. That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I started working there when they were settling a product line that... uh, didn't actually work. And so my first like focus was just terminating and settling all of these agreements. I was like, oh, this is what real law work looks like. (laughs) Yeah. It's less glamorous than they suggest in the movies and TV, isn't it? A little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And no courtroom pleadings are ever done in like, you know, three minutes. It's like the perfect summation argument. No, never happens. Lawyers are fumbling (laughs) over their papers. They can't remember their client's name, blah, blah, blah. But Anyway, well, but it didn't, you know, it's interesting. You have, you're well-educated, you have a great background there, but, um, and you've got an extremely successful company. I mean, acknowledge, I mean, you've made the uh, fa- Inc. fastest growing companies list three times, I think. You've been mm-hmm. awarded by, was it Entrepreneur Magazine, um, top culture, workplace culture in America. Yes. I mean, incredible and rapidly growing, just lots of employees, hundreds of associates, you're the top U.S. provider of virtual assistance in the nation, period. And um, that wasn't automatic for you. you. You grew up in a setting that wouldn't necessarily have predicted success for you. Is that true? That is very true. Um, I never grew up in an atmosphere where business was talked about, where money was discussed, 
where risk was taken to a large extent. Um, I grew up um, middle to low class income, and um, my mom and dad divorced when I was four. My stepdad was in the military, so we traveled a lot when I was young and had very humble beginnings. Um, most of my growing up like years, like um, elementary through middle school, were spent in South Carolina, where we lived in a trailer and um, had just very little to to live on. And it was just my reality. I didn't know. Like I, you know, I worked so I could buy my clothes and my makeup and things like that. Um, but we had a um, a turning point where my parent, my mom and stepdad, actually almost got divorced, and they became. Christians as a result. And they were really um, transformed through that experience, led to the Lord in a, in a little Southern Baptist church in South Carolina. And um, it really changed the trajectory of our family. Um, shortly after that, though, Hurricane Hugo came through South Carolina and destroyed our trailer. And um, my dad at that point had retired from the military and was doing like um, home renovations and home improvements. And the work kind of dried up in that area after the hurricane, like everybody had their insurance checks, got their work done. Um, so we decided to move my senior year or no, I'm sorry, my freshman year of high school back to Ohio where I was born originally. Mm. And, and even then, you know, I, I look back at that, the homes that we lived in there that were all just very, um, humble and yeah. small and, and rented. And my dad was an amazing artist with the work that he did, but he would never like charge people what he was worth and mm -hmm. the value that he brought to them. So it seemed like, um, he, to a fault, he was generous. Um, and my mom worked at Walmart and, um, later on at a dentist office. And so we always just had enough to sort of scrape by, but the concept of, creating a business for wealth and um, using it as an opportunity to grow a large organization and, and contribute to society in that way was just never anything that we discussed. It was never, never in the plan for me hmm. until I met Brian. <laughs> okay. So we, well, yeah, why don't we go there? The question I had for you, and maybe you'll answer it after meeting Brian is how does someone in those circumstances decide I'm going to get an education and this is possible. More is possible. Um, I saw my parents struggle so much that I knew I didn't want that to be my life. Mm -hmm. I knew that there had to be a better way to not live paycheck to paycheck and have money as the source of frustration and argument and strife all the time. Um, and so I actually only applied to one college in Ohio. It was like, um, our little community church was a feeder into this school. So we would just go there and visit. And that's the only school that I applied to. Fortunately, I, I was able to get in. Mm. I'm not sure what plan B would have been, but here we are. <laughs> um, and I was 17. I graduated. I was just kind of one of the young kids in my class. And so I started college when I was 17 and met Brian before classes even started. And that's where you met. You met in college. We met in college. We were babies. College sweethearts. Um, wow. He was a couple years older than me. So he was entering his junior year at the time. So 
I can go into a lot of craziness that happened during college. We actually both ended up losing our dads during that season of time from lung cancer, which you wonder sometimes like how God puts people together and what the greater purpose is. But when we, we went through that together at such a young age, we say that we, we raised each other in a lot of mm. ways. And so, yeah, anyway, a year to the day, our, our dads were, um, after they passed, they were buried and we were just left like these young 20 somethings with really very little, um, guidance and mentoring, um, from our parents just out of necessity. And so we really had to seek out mentors in that season just to learn and, and, and know what to do with this life God had given us, honestly. That's a good point. Who did you turn to? Our advisors in college were pivotal during that season yeah. for us. Um, Glenn and Colleen Bryan, if you're listening, love you guys. Um, mm. And we're still friends with them to this day. And um, Glenn was hugely influential for Brian. He was his business advisor and Colleen was my psychology advisor. And their family just has always meant so much to us. And they poured into us. I mean, we were so broke. I think it was before we were married and Brian had lived off campus um, because after his dad died, he had to restructure how he was going to school. He had to go at night and work during the day or after his dad got diagnosed with cancer. Sorry. They just brought us groceries you know, out of nowhere. And so they met some very basic needs for us, but they really helped our marriage during that time. And and were just great examples for us during that season. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I mean, I feel like we could camp for the whole hour on that. Like that's, that's just, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So you got into college, you kind of knew like I have a history degree. Okay. That's not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) You know, you need something else. So you did an MBA. And then you did your mm-hmm. paralegal training. Oh, I should clarify training. for mm-hmm. those people who are listening who have an MBA. I do not. I just double oh, okay. majored. So, oh, <laughs> double majored in business. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Cool. Business and psychology. So no, no MBA. Just no, that's all right. I guess LA is my MBA. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> my goodness. I mean, when you look at the journey you guys have been on and everything you've scaled, you and Brian have really both spoken in my life. We've, you know, I've had the privilege of hanging out with you guys in Atlanta, being to your home. You're so gracious. And I've learned an awful lot just about, you know, the challenges associated with growth. Um, so you you are like Brian, as you've described it to me, is sort of the visionary part of Belay, right. uh, your operations. So explain what your part in founding Belay was and uh, what you've done over these first seven years of the company and what you're responsible for. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about our journey of how we started it, because that'll set the stage for kind of where we are today. So in 2010, Brian was working for Kogan, which was a church mm-hmm. construction company at the time. He led sales. I'm sure you having him on, he's given you all the backstory. Yeah, I was yeah. still at McKesson at that time and thought I would retire from there. I just I loved working in a big corporation. I liked the structure that it provided, the predictability. Um, but during that season, the first half of 2010, God was really just moving in us in very big ways. And I'm not a typically, um, risky person. (laughs) Um, but I was ready to make a leap, um, bigger than, than I would normally be comfortable with because 
there was just no other clear path for me laid out. And there never had been that situation before. I always knew one step to the next where I was going to go. And in 2010, God was like, no, no, this is bigger than the next job at McKesson. Mm. This is, you're going all in on this. (laughs) So he and I, um, kind of got things established in the summer of that year with the, with the business. And looking back, you know, with him leading sales and always having, you know, to foster these long-term relationships. And he was deep in the church world and he's a phenomenal networker that he was really able to leverage that, um, passion of his and his relationships to validate, okay, we, we have some, an idea for offering virtual assistance to pastors at the time. Um, let's see if we've got something here. So he was able to leverage his network, um, to do a proof of concept. And at the same time, you know, I had migrated during my 10 years at McKesson from legal to sales to project management. And so I was able to leverage all of those various skill sets to get started at Valet. So like getting our contracts in order and establishing what client relations was going to look like. How are we going to onboard these customers? You know, let's look at some, some project plans and figure out like how we're going to launch various initiatives and what communication is going to look like and, and all of that stuff. So yes, Brian is very, um, big picture visionary and I'm more like, all right, let's roll up my sleeves and figure out how we're going to get this done. And I think those two skill sets and mindsets and personalities really are what God has used to make Belay successful. I'm not saying that it's just he and I. We have an amazing team, but I think just in the beginning days, when it was he and I and Trisha for five hours a week, you know, we could really leverage all of the um, the different personalities and skill sets to make it work. How did you decide what your company was going to be about? What did you look at other options? Was it just you saw this gaping hole? How did you make the decision it was going to be virtual assistance? We saw a need and and we knew that we could do it better than it was being done. Um, Brian had been working with Trisha for, I guess, seven years at that point in a virtual assistant capacity. So she was in Charlotte. Mm. We were in north of Atlanta. His company was based in Ohio and they were able to just get stuff done and only see each other a few times a year and lead a team and and be super effective. And, you know, taking that concept and looking at what was available to pastors and church staffs at the time, we thought they need access to resources that are high caliber like this, that, that the model just doesn't exist for today. You know, at at that point, seven, almost eight years ago now, the prevailing model was outsourced overseas. So virtual assistants in India or the Philippines or Guatemala, which in some ways was awesome because like the, the threshold had been broken. Like the, the concept was there, but it didn't work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a brand new idea, but it was um, an idea that we thought we could take and make more effective and more relational and more permanent. Yeah. And so that, that's really where the concept came from. So you've got a lot of um, church planters listening who are about to launch, thinking of launching, just launched in that first year. You've also got a lot of startup entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, a growing business community. Um, 
advice from those early years, uh, what are two or three things everyone who's starting something or, uh, yeah, just needs to pay attention to, in your view? What was critical for you in those first few years of, of what's become Belay? It started as EA Help, Meg Bookkeeping, and then you added other companies. And then I think two years ago, you folded it all under the one umbrella of Belay Solutions. Right. Yeah. Thank you for setting that up. <laughs> I, f- I feel so belay. I forget sometimes that, oh, yes, we were EA yeah. Help and MacBook Keeping for a long time as yeah. well. Um, but yeah. Okay. So a few pieces of advice during those early years where you're getting everything established and trying to grow, I would say right away, don't try to do it alone. Mm. Don't try to do everything in the business or in the ministry. Really look at pulling other people in, whether you're employing them or outsourcing or contracting or whatever, don't try to do everything yourself because you'll burn out fast. And you're probably not the best person to do all the things. Um, So that's one thing. I think another thing is be realistic about what's profitable and it, you know, profitable for your business listeners. They know what I'm talking about. Profitable in ministry is just results-based, you know, like, don't keep throwing money and resources at something that, that isn't working just because you have a great idea. doesn't mean that somebody wants to buy it. (laughs) So I would, I would be realistic and look at like what is profitable in your business and focus your energies there. Um, and I honestly, it's, it's becoming cliche and I hate that it is because it's so powerful, but I would say dream big. I think Mm. in the beginning, you know, we were just so, um, intent on making this work. We, we used all of our 401ks to start the business. So we were really, truly all in. We quit our jobs, used our 401ks, um, risked it all. This fell apart. It's over. <laughs> for the miles. I was like, well, it was a good run. You know? yeah, it was a good run while it lasted. We were in our 30s at the time. And so I think we, we just had enough margin to say, all right, if it doesn't work, hopefully we can leave our jobs well, come crawling back, ask for the jobs back. And, try <laughs> and to start go. again, start okay. over again at 35, right? Yeah. Exactly. And our kids were two and five at the time. So we figured they wouldn't really know what was going on anyway. So if we failed, they would <laughs> shelter them a little bit too. <laughs> they would still be able to go to school and afford books and what else. It calls back to my childhood too, Carrie, honestly, because I came from very little. Like at that point when we started Belay, like even if we risked it all and lost it all, I trusted Brian. I knew we weren't going to live on the streets. Like we would never take that big of a risk where our family would be in jeopardy. And I I knew what it was like to live with nothing. So why not dream big Mm. and really go for broke and... I think that made us scrappy and I think that made us resourceful and and grateful for every single contract that we were able to acquire and every contractor that came on board. Like we were just, um, I personally knew what it was like to have nothing. So I was like, well, if this doesn't work and I go back to nothing, at least I tried. When you were a kid, would you say you had a scarcity mindset because of your background and circumstances? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, like to the point where if I would ever go, um, like, okay, this is a prime example. Um, my real dad lived in Ohio. We lived in South Carolina, most of my early childhood years. And so I would fly back and forth 
to see him for visitation. And on the airplane, I would take all the peanuts, all the cards. We got decks of cards at that time. <laughs> all the, all the bags, like the throw bags, like everything. I would just take all the stuff because I was like, I, I might need this, you know? Wow. And yeah. And I honestly, it wasn't until a few years ago that I stopped taking all the shampoo and soap from hotels. <laughs> Cause Brian, just like, in case one we, day we may not be able to afford head and shoulders, Brian. And I got this little two ounce shampoo just for you. But it is a mindset. I definitely grew up with a scarcity mindset where, where every penny mattered. And my grandmother would wash out baggies and dry them to reuse them. Like that's just, she yelled at me one time because I only used half the tissue. Like that's just how I grew up. Wow. And so to then to be able to have belay and, and the wild success that we've experienced as an organization, I don't think that mindset totally goes away. Like it's, we still run pretty lean and, and we're relatively frugal as an organization, but um, we know that there is an abundance of opportunity and there's an abundance of people to serve and people to partner with. And so it takes away some of the fear that I think controlled me in those early years. And it, and it gives you the confidence to take risks and to dream big. Well, and that's why I asked the question and thank you for answering it so honestly. I think scarcity mentality is something that plagues a lot of the church. Um, and if it doesn't plague pastors, it certainly plagues the board and church members. Uh, I've seen it starve businesses. I, I, I think scarcity mindset is a big deal in our culture. And, you know, I think I know you and Brian well enough and the company well enough to know you're not lavish, you're not irresponsible. Um, but I would, I would say at this point, from what I know of you, Shannon, both you and Brian are abundance thinkers that you mm-hmm. do think abundantly. And I mean, that's one of the things the two of you have spoken into my life. It's like, Carrie, think bigger, dream bigger. How did you make that pivot? How did you change? I think it's a series of God just showing up over and over again. And, you know, you put yourself out there and and he shows up and validates, all right, you're on the right path, keep going. And it it almost got to be irresponsible to not take risks because he was entrusting us with so much um, that we just want to be good stewards of. So I, I think really the, the big shift, Carrie, was when we started the business and didn't deplete our 401ks completely. We, we started to turn a profit before that um, initial investment was gone. And it's like, okay, we actually may have something here. And from the beginning, I think one of the decisions we made early on that might be helpful for your listeners, we knew that we couldn't be all things to all people. Sure. Not every prospect out there was going to be a good customer for Belay. And so we were very selective in who we decided to partner with, knowing that if we couldn't serve somebody well, it would only cause strife for the team, frustration for the client, a bad name in the market. So when you talk about an abundance mentality, we were very and still are very selective in who we partner with for clients because we think there's plenty of opportunity out there and we can't be the right solution for everyone. And I think that was one of the saving graces for us. Mm -hmm. There's a a bit of a paradox in that because I've seen that in you for sure and have experienced that. And I'm glad this isn't the questions I sent you, but if we can go there. 
Um, I'd love to talk about it. Um, sure. <clears throat> you know, being a client myself, having used your services for a couple of years now, I've had an inside sort of view of how your company works. And I'm, I'm really impressed. Like I'm going back for more, not just because you're my mm-hmm. friends, but because it's made a big difference to, to my business. Um, but you have an abundance mentality, but that has led you to be extremely picky. Um, and a lot of, I think a, a lot of rookie mistakes in leadership, and I've certainly made my share of them, is you jump at every opportunity because, oh my goodness, this may never happen again. Like, if I don't say yes to this client, we could be out of business tomorrow. If I don't keep this person in my church, I know they're crotchety, I know they don't like anything, but if I lose them, you know, gosh, what's going to happen to the future? And so there's this, you get into this pleasing thing. And I've had conversations with you and Brian where like you've let good paying clients go because they've been, and by clients, I mean employers who are looking to you to staff their teams. Mm -hmm. You've let those clients go because they were high maintenance or too difficult or not the right culture fit. And um, even though you're a rapidly growing company, three times on the the, um, ink list of fastest growing companies, I think you have a 98%, if I'm right, Laura told me that, Laura McGraw, rejection Mm -hmm. rate of people who apply to you to be assistants. So on the one hand, you're getting rid of clients. On the other hand, you get 100 resumes for like, yes, I want to be one of your virtual assistants. And something like two or five of them actually Mm -hmm. make the cut. So you've been highly selective, and yet that's tied to an abundance mentality can you unpack that for us a little bit? Because I think that's fascinating and it's not always intuitive to every leader why those two go together. We know what a privilege it is to be able to acquire a client and, and really serve them well. And we don't take that lightly. Mm-hmm. And so if if during the sales cycle, our team gets the sense of we're not going to be able to serve this leader well for whatever reason, maybe expectations are beyond what we know we can deliver, maybe... Um, money doesn't match with ours, whatever. Um, we try to just point them in, a, in another direction where they can be successful. But when they come on board as a client, we need to knock their socks off. Like we need to have the best of the best to serve them. And we, if we wouldn't want somebody, you know, a contractor coming through working for one of us, why would we get them to our client? It just doesn't make sense. So, um, the economy has changed a lot during the course of time where we've started Belay. Unemployment was a lot higher when we started than it is right now. So things have changed and we've had to be proactive in the types of candidates that, that we're bringing on and the amount of capacity they have and things like that. But at the end of the day, we want the best of the best. And when they're on our team, we're, we're behind them a hundred percent. Like mm-hmm. once you're in the fold, we are here to make you successful. We're here to make our clients successful. Our vision is to help you achieve your vision. Like we're all in for that. And so the more work and it's hard, the more work you do on the front end to really make sure that you're partnering with the right people, the more rewarding the work will be, the more right. profitable the work will be. And, um, I think the bigger blessing you can be to other people. So what's the takeaway in the, in the startup years? Because, again, thinking of those entrepreneurs, thinking about those church planters, even thinking of somebody who maybe has a small church and they're seeing they're in a season of growth, they have all these new people, 
And yet, you know, somebody walks into your church and it's like, yeah, I don't really know. You know, they caused a, a schism at their last church, but they give. And, you know, how do you how do you say no or how do you do a careful selection um, in those early startup days when everything seems so scarce? We learned a lot in those early days. And I think you have to try different things to see what's going to work. Here's a, here's an example. We partnered with a church organization to create a service line to serve group pastors. And it was a cool idea. It was innovative. It was super exciting to partner with this organization. Um, nobody bought it. (laughs) Very few, like very few. And it was a very costly service to deliver because I personally was having to be involved. It was So when, when we were realistic and looked at like how much we were actually making from this and where my time was being spent, it made it very clear, like, this is not where we should be spending our time. So sometimes you just have to try things like that to see what's going to work. But my advice would be measure everything and make the call sooner than you think. Mm. Like, don't keep chasing good dollars after bad and, and trying to force something to work. Like Reggie talks about all the time, force yeah. and flow, right? If it's not working, if it's not flowing, you may make a few adjustments or pivots here and there, but like you need to be able to be brave and make the call and say, all right, we got to sunset this. It's not, it's not going to fit our business. And we've had a few of those service lines that just didn't work. Um, But there's no harm in trying. I think you just have to be realistic about what the expectations are and what the, like if, what success would look like for whatever you're offering. When you're cutting things, or as you say, sunsetting things that you tried, was there any fear involved? Were you afraid that, oh gosh, what if this is the one that really turns out to be um, you know, the sleeper that become, because I, I see that a lot in ministry. I mean, there's a lot of people who lead really complicated organizations who know they need to cut, but it's producing something, you know, there's yeah. 10 people who attend this, this has got a modest profit in corporate or whatever. Did you have to overcome fear? I think the bigger emotion or feeling that I had to overcome was pride. I was emotionally invested in these things and I wanted so much for them to work because yeah, you have people who are benefiting. It's not a total loss. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. Right. But at the end of the day, it was really pride in saying, okay, this didn't, this didn't work. And in separating my own identity from it, um, and, and, and saying like, I didn't fail. Like it just doesn't work and that's okay. That's part of risk, right? Like we all know that intuitively, but when you're in it, it's really hard to see it. And Carrie, we go to North point, as you know, like we've been going Mm. to North point forever since 99. And one of the things I admire so much about North point is they don't try to do all the programs. Like Mm. they know what they're good at. They know what ministries are effective. And then they look for, community partners or organizations, um, outside of the community globally that are knocking it out of the park, they're killing it. And they're like, let's just make them successful. And I think businesses can take a lot from that too, because we, 
are presented with so much opportunity. Oh, have you guys thought about selling insurance? And oh, since you already have all of these resumes, why don't you repurpose all the ones that are rejected and do a whole new revenue stream? And like, none of it's really a terrible idea, but it's like, gosh, you only have so many resources and so many hours in the day, like go with what you're good at and like double down on that. And, and I think North Point's done that. And, and now that we've matured as an organization, and I want to say it like you say, I want to say organization, but then it feels <laughs> contrived. That's my Canadian. But I might pick that up. I super love it. Um, Reggie Joyner gives me such a hard time over that. How do you say that again? Reggie, just leave me alone. Oh, good. Organization. <laughs> I'm just going to start saying it only on this podcast, though. How do you say it? Organization. Oh, see, I, can, I, I don't even hear the difference, but I'm sure it's there. <laughs> It's the harder eye for you. Ah, uh, I don't organization versus Sorry. organization. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. Now I know. All the magic's gone. I understand it. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So I don't what I was saying. Take yeah. Me well, direction. that's all right. That's all right. Hey, um, one thing you and Brian have both said. And uh, it's got a direct application to business. I want to translate it to church world too for all the church leaders listening. But uh, I've heard you say it over and over again. You want to own your business, not run it. And um, first of all, what do you mean by that? And then when I want to look at practical application. When Brian was on, did he tell the story of how that concept came about? Uh, can't remember exactly. There have been so many conversations and a lot of them offline. So go ahead and tell it. Just it's fast. It's it's cool. It gives yeah. you a visual for it. Okay. So it was 2011, I think. Yeah. 11. And we were vacationing in Jackson hole and Brian was climbing the grand Teton with a wildly successful businessman named Jeff, who um, is a dear friend of ours. And they get to camp and they're chatting in the tent and Brian makes some kind of comment about owning our business. And Jeff goes, and Jeff is very blunt and in your face. And he's like, you don't own anything. And Brian's like, what? Yes, I do. <laughs> I own this business. I quit my job. I started this company. I own this business. And said, and Brian, uh, Jeff said, listen, the day that the business doesn't need you day to day, you own it. Until then, you run your business. And Brian's like, dang it. You're right. And so he came off down off the mountain. And he's like, Shannon, like we need to structure this company in a way that we can own it someday and not run it. And so the practical applications for us have been to develop leaders, to trust and delegate and turn things over. And like we were chatting about before um, the podcast, you know, like getting out of some meetings that you don't mm -hmm. need to be in. Um, you can't be the filter for every decision that has to be made in your company. And so I think it's being intentional about grooming up leaders and delegating that allows you to get out of the day to day and focus on owning and not running. Yeah. So now I think everybody listening has got the principles. It's why 85% of churches don't pass 200. It's why so many more churches that do break that barrier struggle to get past a thousand it's the pastor who does everything. You're the decision. You're the bottleneck. It's the business owner who tries to do everything. What were some key things for you that you had to let go, particularly as the operational person? 
where where did you start? And then like every time I talk to you and Brian, you guys are like, oh, we're just coming back from this. We're doing this. You always look so relaxed. And I know that's not true. Um, no, but I, I look at <laughs> I look at I look at people running a fraction of what you are, and they're ten times more stressed than you guys seem to be. So I, I'm I'm listening with my notebook open. Well, there's a few things that go into that. Um, our kids are still pretty young; they're only yeah. nine and twelve, but they're nine and twelve. We don't have mm. a ton of time left with them. And we never wanted them to resent the fact that mom and dad owned a business. Right. Like I mentioned earlier with my, my stepdad who had his um, home improvement business, like it was a source of frustration and resentment because of how it was run and just, it wasn't working for our family. So I saw to a, a, diff, a lesser degree, like I didn't want that for Brian and I. So the reason we went on vacation you know, a year after starting the business and and felt like, yeah, let's take the kids and my mom to Jackson hole is because at what point do you start enjoying things? You know, like you, that's such a <laughs> like great question. At what right? point like, do, what you do you start enjoying for? things? <laughs> and so Bring we that. know like time is so short with these guys and, and even Brian and I, you know, just carving out time for each other and not waiting for some magical milestone in the business or only if we get to this point, you know, can we do these things? Like it's a mindset. So one thing that has helped tremendously is our leaders are incredible. They have proven themselves over and over and over again to the point that now they're looking to us to get even more out of the way of things. <laughs> like, thank you, Shannon, but no, we don't need you. You don't need to be in this meeting. We've got it. We'll we'll come to you with our our suggestions and and make sure you're good. But like, please don't. <laughs> don't That's what don't my team was there. telling me this morning before I got on this interview with you, and and some of them are are actually from your organization. They're like. You do not need to be in this monthly. We have a, a weekly marketing meeting. They're like, you do not need to be in this meeting. You do not need to be in that. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. So back off. And, you know, I went through it with the church and and backed off a lot, but you kind of forget, you know, so in this little company that does the podcast and the blog and books and that kind of stuff speaking. So back off. Yeah, that's a, why is that so hard for so many leaders? I, I want to say pride again. Like uh, I just, I think it's a, I think it's an underlying theme because mm-hmm. we, maybe some of it is just a, a tremendous sense of responsibility and not wanting yeah. things to fail. Like, I don't think it's nefarious, but I, I do think that when we think the organization rests solely on our shoulders or our decisions, that's pride. That's not mm-hmm. true. Like if you really feel like you've been called or led to do something then the whole thing's bigger than you. Yeah. And you have to let go and you have to, and for the sake of growth, you have to lead with open hands. So what did you, you're operational. What mm-hmm. did you let go? Like walk us through 2011. Brian's literally down from the mountain. We're going to own our business, not run it. What did you start to let go of? Oh my gosh. At this point I've let go of almost everything. Um, Trisha is our COO now, which is a role yeah. that I held for a long time in the company. And Brian and I are joint CEOs. So 
Um, I'll run down the list <laughs> yeah, for a while. I was no, doing let's get real. Yeah. Finance was the first thing. Like that was even before the mountain talk. That was, um, this not financially minded girl trying to learn QuickBooks and enter transactions and send out invoices and Brian looking me in the eyes and saying, honey, I love you. You're not doing this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So Carrie, we practice what we preach from day one and outsource, um, bookkeeping. Um, and then I would say the next thing I got an assistant. Um, her name was Misty. And then I started to delegate client relations responsibilities. So like all of the onboarding and caring and feeding of the clients and the contractors, eventually Brian started delegating marketing and then sales. Um, I've delegated HR, talent acquisitions, finance, legal. Mm, yeah, those are the biggies. Like, <laughs> like I said, pretty much everything. All of it. So no, that's really helpful because as you go through that list and maybe we can actually put that list in the show notes just so that people can see it there on paper between you and Brian, that was the skill set you brought to the business. Mm-hmm. Legal, we have a mantra of replacing ourselves. Wow. So, of course, that begs the question, uh, what do you do? What do you spend your time doing now? <laughs> oh, my God. My favorite movie of all time is Office Space. Do you know this movie? Oh, is that TPR Reports? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. I love that, that movie. And yeah. one of the famous lines is, so what would you say you do here? Like, I feel like that's what you just <laughs> So what would you say? My kids argue that I do pretty much nothing. Uh, they watch me work and they're like, that is work? Like, what do you actually do? Um, yeah, I may or may not have done like a music video not that long ago. And I was like, <laughs> job? Like, I'm getting paid for this? Okay. <laughs> Can we link to that? We'll link to that in the show notes. That was that was the one where you did, what was it, Uptown Funk? You and Brian? That was the last one. Yeah, yeah, our whole leadership team. So one of our core values is fun, Carrie. We were just mm. trying to hold true to our values. <laughs> um, no, so honestly, because I have replaced myself in so many aspects of the business with capable leaders in Trisha and Lisa and so many of our other lead team members, I can focus on conversations like this. I can be the face of Belay as an owner and a CEO. I can do media opportunities. I just wrote a book. And I would have never had the time or mental bandwidth to do any of that if I had to be the one in all the meetings or making all the decisions or coming up with all the ideas. Like it just wouldn't work. And and honestly, you know, 2018 has been like the most fun year we've had in a long time in the business. And our team, like we're on our lead team call the other day, we meet every week and we're like, what's going on? Like, why is this? And, um, I can't remember who said it, but they were like, I think part of it is that you and Brian are doing the things that you need to be doing for the business. Now Mm. you're focused on the right things. That's so good. I mean, I remember having started, you know, my church journey over 23 years, just a, a tiny editorial with six people. I mean, you do everything when you start, right? And then starting over again 10 years ago at Conexus Church, I mean, if you're not pulling cases, setting up chairs, uh, you know, it's startup. It's startup. You're in startup world. But I remember 
it took us a few years, but uh, a few years ago, when we finally broke the thousand barrier, and now we're fifty percent. We're like fifteen hundred on a weekend. We just had a massive Easter. It's just crazy, nice. huge growth. Um, but I remember one of the first Sundays where I showed up, and the only thing I had to do or even think about was the message. Mm. And I remember feeling hopelessly redundant and useless as a leader, even in my lead pastor days. But of course, that is exactly where you need to be. Because if you're going to reach more people, and you're going to have multiple campuses, and you're going to develop other leaders, and they're going to take on responsibility, you become strangely not redundant. It actually makes you more valuable to your company, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're the ability, you, you theoretically have the ability to pull everybody together. But it's the strangest feeling for somebody who started something from scratch or used to being in the weeds to, to the level where you don't even know anymore. Oh, we do that? I didn't know because someone else made the decision. Or, you know, yeah. people ask you questions and you're like, I'm not sure. And, and that's good. And, and that's, a, that's a really good thing. But it's a lesson, I think, as a leader, we have to learn over and over and over again as you scale. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it is a super weird feeling, but if you're doing it right, that's where you want to be. And then I think the shift is you have to invest in and encourage those leaders that you've raised up. Like you can't just be like, okay, now I'm not in these meetings or I'm not in the day to day. Good luck guys. Call me if you have a problem. It's, I still care. It just looks different. It's, it's calling somebody who you know has had a particularly stressful season and saying, hey, how's it going? Or Zoom, better yet, you Zoom them. Right, right. Or, you know what I mean? It's 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 investing in and connecting with and caring for those leaders because they need you still. They just need you in a different way. Well, and that's how I spent a lot of my time in my final years as the lead, now I'm founding teaching, was building relationships with that inner core, our elders, our top staff, making sure everybody there was great, um, thinking about the future, working on messages. And really, you know, with that team, defining the direction, which is I know something that you and Brian are very intensely um, active in, in determining, well, what does Belay look like a year from now, five years from now, you know, uh, that sort of directional leadership. Now, I don't want to name drop, but it's it's interesting. I know that you and Brian have spent some time on Necker Island with Richard Branson. You look at people mm -hmm. on planet Earth leading a lot. Uh, he would be near the top of the list. I mean, there's right. not a whole lot of people alive today who um, have done more in terms of organizational leadership than Richard Branson. And I mean, he's part of the whole Virgin Empire. And you know, maybe different values than some of us listening. I get that. But I mean, he is a brilliant business person. And you said one of the lessons you learned from Richard Branson was that if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Right. Talk about that. I still pinch myself sometimes thinking that wasn't real. Like that week <laughs> on Necker Island did not happen because it was just too perfect. Um, we've had the opportunity to go back and we haven't because I don't think we can recreate that experience. It was, it was so magical. magical. Yeah. And you talk about like, you know, leaders and their ability to, to focus and be present. I mean, we on it, he spent so much time with our group there, which was a group of other entrepreneurs. So I think it was interesting discussion for him and, and connections that um, you felt like you were the only person in the world. Like, and he like, there were probably a billion other people he could be talking to at that moment. So in, in terms of the, if you're 
dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. We were there right after the Virgin Galactic tragedy where the the pilot died. And um, that's a very ambitious mission to have commercialized space travel, right? But that's Richard Branson's always been ambitious like that. Like from the day he started Virgin (laughs) Airlines, like from having owned a newspaper or a magazine rather, like he's always dreamt big. And it's like, if, if somebody like that who has dyslexia and um, I don't even think went to college can be as successful as he is, why not dream bigger? Like why not just, put something out there and see what's going to happen with it. I mean, the whole reason we were on Necker Island is because we were talking, Brian was talking to our PR firm and they were like, all right, Brian, what's a pie in the sky? Like big picture. If you could get some exposure and have a cool experience, what would you do? He said, I would love to shake Richard Branson's hand. And two months later we were on Necker Island. Like if you don't say stuff like that, like it's not going to happen. Like, and so I will put it out there. I would super love to meet Oprah. She's my hero. I grew up watching her every day at four o'clock. So Oprah, if anybody has a connection to her, I'm here for that. And my personal cell number, Oprah, is. (laughs) (laughs) And I promise I won't pass out, but I will probably. (laughs) No, but you got it, you know, and and that was, we have a mutual friend, Casey Graham. Um, Mm -hmm. And Casey pushed me on that. He's like, you're thinking too small. You're thinking too small. And I realized that one of my fears, which I've worked through in a counselor's office and on my knees in prayer, is that I, I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid of size and scale. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of my life mantras has become, let God determine size. I mean, Ooh. if he wants to make it smaller, make it smaller. If he wants to make it bigger, make it bigger. If he wants to leave it the same, leave it the same. I should not be the shaper of size. And that kind of pulls off all the limits, restrictive and grandiose thinking. I am so taking that because I have the same tendency. Really? In part, I think, oh, absolutely to think, oh, I don't, it, mine is more an issue of worth. Who am mm-hmm. I to have an organization of this size or lead this many people or have this much opportunity or exposure? Like it's more like, it's a matter of worth. Um, and I think that mindset, which I have also spent a lot of time on a counselor's couch talking about, <laughs> is is so limiting, and it's so um, it's almost like disrespectful to God because we're all His children, and He's made us uniquely. And who says that there's one particular template for what a leader looks like? There isn't. I remember being so discouraged when we started Belay. And taking the DISC personality profile mm-hmm. and finding myself to be a high S and a high I. And I looked at that and I thought, that's not what a CEO looks like. <laughs> I have no business having a company. Like I should be doing something totally different that doesn't involve making quick decisions or, yeah. you know, or, you know, or being like a high D. High D's are leaders, right? Brian's a high D. Like he, that's what a leader looks like. But that is so incorrect. But I think that kind of uh, mentality can really sabotage your opportunity for success and fly in the face of, I think, what God wants for you. Mm. You know, thank you for sharing that. And I think that's so true. I mean, if you think back historically, 
Like, what if the Apostle Paul had felt that way? It's like, who am I to be expanding the church all over the Mediterranean basin, right? I should just, I just, just should just stay here, you know, in Damascus, and you know, maybe I'll talk to five people over the next five years, you know. But he had that ambition, or John Calvin, or Mother Teresa, or Martin Luther King. I mean, if they just sat there and said, "Huh, I don't think so," uh, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. you know we're any of them, but often it's a false humility. You know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, you know, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And that's true. Okay, so Richard Branson, incredibly present. I remember in the stories you and Brian have told. um, Talk about that. Because again, the assumption would be if you're running the Virgin Empire, airlines, you know, records, uh, I don't know how many companies he's got. He's got a bazillion companies. Hundreds. yeah, and yeah. they're worth billions of dollars. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. You would think his phone's buzzing the whole time. He's super distracted. He's that stereotypical, yeah, I can't talk right now, but not at all, right? Mm-hmm. So talk about mm-hmm. that. I think the reason he has such a large empire and so many companies is because he knows how to turn off the business and, and enjoy life. Like he was the first person out there on the paddle board to paddle around the the island. He's like, come on, everybody, let's go. Like it, I think that's why he's been able to scale because he knows he has to have an amazing team to, to do all of that. And he creates, he's such a gravitational force. Like he creates fun (laughs) and Hmm. you know he creates a cool environment that people want to be part of and i'm sure his organizations have problems and obviously like i just said you know there he was coming off the heels of the whole virgin galactic disaster but at the same time like it didn't break him like it didn't rattle him you know he was still able to to take those moments with with people and truly ask questions and listen and like, I've, he, we had a meeting with somebody as a result of that experience on the Virgin team. And you could tell like Richard's leadership just filters down. Like the guy that we met with was like taking copious notes about our organization. And he's over like a huge division of mm-hmm. the Virgin properties, like crazy. Like, n- like I can't even believe we got this meeting. <laughs> But he was writing down information about our company and about Brian and I. And it's like, that's the example I think that, that Richard sets. Like, it's, a, it's not a contrived, uh, look at me, I'm so amazing. It's, I genuinely care about other people. He's a huge environmentalist. He genuinely yeah. cares about the earth. And I think he wants the world to be in a better place. And I think when you are always out of time, stressed out, onto the next thing in some other universe, you can't. You can't fulfill that. I'm just preaching to the choir here, but yet, literally yesterday I was on a conversation with a guy who's leading one of the largest and fastest growing churches in, in the U.S. We just had a quick phone call. And he happened to mention that he had been at Google headquarters, and I won't say names, but anyway, what blew him away was this is Google, high level at Google. And um, Google, he said they were the most humble people. And Google had invested 40 hours of staff time before they got in the room investigating this guy's church. And they knew more, not like investigating as in, oh my goodness, here's your expose. Just like, we want to learn about your organization. How are you doing multi-site? How are you doing this? How are you doing that? He said, 
And you know, I think a lot of leaders have, a. I think what you say is so true, a false de- definition of success that it's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. The best leaders we know are the people who are like, no, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your company. Whether whether you add any value to what I'm doing or not, right? Whether whether okay. we're going to be able to do business together or not, like, what can you offer Richard Branson? And and that's good. Do you know Pat Lincioni is... Oh, yeah. The, oh, my gosh. He's the most amazing person. Um, Brian and I had an hour-long meeting with him and Amy and uh, Rishi, who was a consultant for our leadership team in 2017. And... Not only had he read up on our organization, he read our Myers-Briggs personality results and like talked about them. I'm like, who does that? Like, why should he even care? But it's because he's an amazing leader and he was so generous with his time and we had the most fun discussion. And like you said, nothing may ever result. Like there was no like, agenda like if we don't accomplish this then it was wasted time it was just like let's just let's just have a conversation and get to know each other better and then if anything comes of it great if not that's okay too and just enjoy the experience but he was the epitome of that like super present not distracted at all and I kept thinking we should probably let him go like he (laughs) (laughs) but he just got hung out I was like well I'm not gonna miss this opportunity (laughs) let's keep talking that's incredible. And you know what? I see that as a defining characteristic of some of the finest leaders, period. And uh, by the way, podcast listeners, uh, Patrick's scheduled to be a guest on this podcast this year. So we're super excited about that. So excited to have Patrick Lencioni. Well, you do have two amazing kids who you've mentioned. I met them. And um, one of the questions you've got to struggle with, and you address this to a large extent in your new book, The Third Option, um, is how do you get it all done, Shannon? So we've got to talk about that before we wrap up today. It is an incredible feat to be able to run a massively growing company and have a healthy marriage and take care of yourself and raise two kids. Gosh, you make me, I sound tired. Like, right? I should feel <laughs> tired after you say all that. Like, <laughs> it is a lot, but I think the same principles that we talked about earlier with regard to the business apply to your family as well. Don't try to do it all on your own. Um, my mom has been an integral part of making this all work. She holds down the fort when we travel, she takes care of the kids. Um, but even things like sharing carpool with, um, our dear friends, Robin, Shauna, or, um, you know, having somebody just pick up some couple groceries when they're at the store, like tiny little things like that. When you open yourself up to the community that's around you, that really loves and cares for you, like make a huge difference. They make it work. And I am, can I stop you right there for a minute? Of course. Cause I just want to ask a question. Yeah. Like it's easy to do that when you have money, but did you do that from the very beginning? I mean, how do you yeah. do that? Is it a cooperative thing? I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, I don't pay anybody to bring the kids home. They just, <laughs> um, no, it is, it is a, it goes back and forth, right? Like, it's not just take, 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 serve me. You know, I have all this stuff going on. So I need all this help. It's we've got Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. You guys have Thursdays and Fridays. And sometimes we have a meeting and then we switch. It's like an ebb and flow. And 
all, you know, one of the premises of the third option is that you're able to direct your time. And, and so much of that is being able to give back and to serve and care for others in the ways that, that you want. And so it's not a one-way street. That's why I wanted to ask the question, because I knew it wasn't a question of, oh, you know, we just hire all these people and now our life is wonderful and our personal maid, you know, presses our clothes before we wake up in the morning or whatever. Because I think a lot of people have more options in that department than they think they do. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't take a lot of money. I mean, if you look at your the value of your time, and I think, you know, that is something that a lot of people struggle with is really being honest about the value of their time and where it should be spent. Um, we have a lot of people on our team, no joke that work so that they don't have to clean their own houses. <laughs> They're like, I would rather work as, as an assistant and be part of something I'm passionate about and use my professional skill set. but I am not cleaning my toilets. Like that's just not happening. So I make somebody else do it. And guess what? They're happy. And it's not about the scarcity mentality, right? That we talked about earlier. It's not like, oh, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Like there's so many ways to, to skin the cat on all the things that need to happen in your life. And this perceived, like you can have it all. Like, I actually think you can. I just think you have to define what that looks like and know that you don't have to be the one to do it all. And especially if you're a parent, you know, one of uh, my friends, Melissa, that works for us, said, you know, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. So a lot of it is, you know, really looking at contributions of the entire family too, and not feeling like, well, it's mom's responsibility to do all these things and you guys are helping me. No. Somebody said on our launch team, which I thought was brilliant. She said, we've always had a mantra in our home. You live in a house, not a hotel. (laughs) Not here to serve you. That's good. You teach kids responsibility. Right? And I didn't grow up. I mean, I I sort of grew up that way in terms of like having to work and things like that. But my mom is still the last one to sit down at the table because she wants to make sure that everybody has what they want. So it's, it's, it's finding little shifts like that um, where you don't feel the responsibility of having to do it all that make you make you able to do more. Yeah. Um, Rhythms, habits, and personal disciplines that you have these days that really, you know, if they're on, they help you thrive. What, what are some things that you do that we can learn from? Okay, so I'm doing something new this year, which I'm sort of obsessed with. And it came from a conversation with Trisha about like her knowing my top five. And really, I've shared this with my lead team. So this year, for 2018, I looked at the five areas of focus that I need to have. Um, most of it's belay related. Some yeah. of it's personal. So the five areas of focus for me are grow partnerships, to grow myself, to grow my team, grow the company and grow influence. And each of those areas translate to a day of the week, Monday through Friday. And therefore my assistant can know if she's trying to schedule a podcast interview or a media opportunity or a lunch with somebody who wants to pick my brain as a CEO or a networking meeting where those should go in the days. And it's not a perfect system, but it is a system that we try to have a framework for. And it's really helped my calendar and my time management. And it's helped her a lot too, to say, okay, well that 
you know, grow the company is full for Thursday, the fifth. So it's going to need to move to the 12th, whatever the meeting is. So that's something that I've started this year that I've, I've really been enjoying. And does that become like a filter for decision making about what gets on your calendar and what doesn't? Exactly. If it doesn't fall in one of those five areas, I don't feel an obligation to do it. Wow. And the, the other thing that's helped me too with this is I um, am an Enneagram three. So I'm an achiever and I always feel like I should be doing more. I didn't do enough. It doesn't matter how much I accomplished or whatever. Like there's always more. And that's not a bad thing, but it's an exhausting thing. And so having these five areas of focus and knowing that I've been able to accomplish something within each of them in any given week lets me just breathe and know, okay, of course there's more to do. There always is. That's the nature of life. But I did a lot this week and I can can enjoy my Saturday morning and chill. Hmm. Well, tell us a little bit more about the third option, because I'm super excited about the launch of your book. And uh, what is the third option? And uh, what are some of the principles behind it, Shannon? Okay, so the third option is four years in the making of um, my story about how I realized I didn't have to choose between my career and my family, but I could have both and succeed. Mm And so it's my journey of when I was working at McKesson and then having rainy and then, you know, have full plans to go back to work, had a nanny all laid out. Brian and I were not financially prepared for me to quit, but I held her and I was like, oh my gosh, this little baby, I love her so much. Um, and, and we just had to make some tough decisions. So for, you know, three months on maternity leave was fine. I was able to be with her. The nanny started. And a few months into that um, situation, we realized you really, it's really hard to have two people selling. (laughs) Brian Mm. was in sales. I was in sales. We were traveling. We had a nanny, had this baby, like something had to give. And from there, my third option was born where I was able to craft this part-time work at home position out of another position that existed in the company. So it was taking what was traditionally an on-site full-time role and making it work for me and my family. And I thought it was just going to be a, a bridge to staying home because at that point I thought you're, you're either 40 hours a week plus climbing the corporate ladder, traveling, commuting, whatever, or you're a stay-at-home mom. Like there, for me, I didn't think there was anything in between except for this transitionary period. But it just kept working. This mm. third option of working part-time, still serving my clients, um, it just it worked for years. It, through the birth of Harper, who there's almost three years in between them, and it, and it just continued to work until we started Belay. And our whole business model, as you know, Carrie, is comprised of people who work part-time from their homes. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I've had this idea of like, people need to know this is a thing. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't have to just choose between killing it, you know, climbing the ladder 40 hours a week, going into an office and a soul-sucking commute or not working at all. Like there's so much in between that we just need to have a conversation about. So it's 
it's really born out of my experience, but then it's also a practical book too of how do you know you're ready for a change? Mm. How do you know the third option is right for you? And how do you make it work? Because that's the thing. Like it's something you have to choose over and over again. You have to fight to make it work. So, and then one more thing and I'll stop talking about it. I could go on forever about this book. I'm so excited about it. Um, my favorite part is all of the stories from the book and that have resulted from people reading the book. And so we're capturing those at mythirdoption.com slash stories. And it'll give um, a, a good picture of, of what the third options can look like because there's so many of them. Um, so that's been my favorite part about this whole experience. What makes working from home, you know, like a home-based business, a home-based position, what makes that so much more doable? Why is that, in your view, uh, such a life-giving option? It provides such a quality of life. Like, I, I think it gives you a sense of control that you don't have if you're obligated to go into an office every day. And, and I get it. Work from home is not for everybody, but it's for more people than you think. Mm-hmm. And work from home doesn't mean you have to go start a company and build a business and hire a bunch of people. Like, that's intimidating, and that's not the path for everybody. But there's so many opportunities to work from home that are legitimate opportunities, not make six figures. Yeah, they're not some weird Google AdWords (laughs) thing that pops up on a website, you know, make X number of dollars from home if you, you know, sell this cleaning product to 500 of your closest former friends. It's not that kind of thing. It seems too good to be true. It probably is, right? Exactly. (laughs) But I think it provides such a quality of life where you really you can balance um, your family obligations, your personal interests and your professional pursuits and and make them all work together. Cool. And so the book comes out, what's the date? April 10th. April 10th. Awesome. So it is available and we would love to get it into your hands. So what's the best place where they can find you and the book online? They can definitely find the book on Amazon. Um, They can find the book and some resources available at mythirdoption.com. You can take a quiz, download the manifesto, um, go through a decision tree, and then um, add to or review those stories that I mentioned earlier. Um, We also have a fun presence on Instagram at mythirdoption. For me personally, I'm at Shannon K. Miles. And if you're curious about Belay, it's Belay Solutions. All right. Well, that's cool. Shannon, as always, a real joy. Thanks for building into leaders today. Thank you, Carrie. Well, we're going to put all that stuff in the show notes and you can find that just by going to carrynewhoff.com or if you can't spell that, and I don't blame you, go to leadlikeneverbefore.com, search out Shannon Miles and you will see the show notes there. So um, everything we talked about is there, all the links, and hopefully that makes it easy for you. Man, if this conversation was meaningful to you, Uh, First of all, I would be so encouraged if you shared it with friends. Secondly, would you let us know? Like, give us a shout out on social. You can find me as Carrie Newhoff on Instagram or C Newhoff on Twitter or Facebook. Um, Also, we love ratings and reviews. When you tell iTunes about us, they tell everybody about us. So it really helps. Go to iTunes. We're at over 600 five-star reviews. Thank you for all your reviews. And hey, we're back next Tuesday with our regularly scheduled episode. We've got, uh, well, who do we have coming up next Tuesday? We have got, let's see, 
Jessica Bueller, and Gina McLean. Also coming up, Nick Vojcic, Christine Kane, Clay Scroggins, uh, Mark Clark, Brian Carter, Max Lucado, so many more. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, how's that? So if you subscribe, you get it all for free in your inbox. And occasionally we do like special stuff like this. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the special bonus episode. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.